The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So I've, I've titled this morning, um, The Power of Words, the caption, Where We're Going. Um, the, uh, two very, when we're doing little sections, like you cover three verses, uh, and I'm doing one through three this morning, um, yeah, I've broken down sections, two sections. The first is the spoken word, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 1. And the second section is going to be the living word, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. So the spoken word, very simple, and the living word. That's where we're going. So I'd like, like us to think just an opening about this, the, the calling that God gives each of us, that we're called to use our words for Christ's glory and to proclaim His name. And if you were to take a tally of the words you use in any particular day and say, how many of my words fall into that compared to all my other words? If your conclusion's like mine, I speak vastly too many words. The, the words are just wasted. And the sad fact is I wish I could say they're just wasted, but they're not. They're destructive. Uh, there's no stagnation in a spiritual life. You're growing or you're going. And so those words, if I'm not exalting the person of Christ, what am I doing? I'm exalting myself or I'm engaged in some worldly pursuit that has nothing to do with the exaltation of the person of Christ. So just, just to, to kind of open up with the thought that we are called to use our words for Christ's glory and to proclaim His name. So I've been reading a book. I like, every once in a while I like uh, autobiographies. Secular books, just like nothing about work, nothing about family, nothing about, I want to read something, just some, something about the world. And I've been reading a book on and off, um, a book by, uh, about a guy's like, I mean, it's, it's like take your breath away reading. Joseph Goebbels was a na Nazi politician and was Adolf Hitler's Reich Minister of Propaganda of Nazi Germany from 1933 through 1945, right? This guy was a player in World War II. He was one of Adolf Hitler's closest associates and most devoted followers. Following Hitler's suicide, Goebbels, in his will, Hitler's will said, Goebbels is vice chancellor. Following Hitler's suicide, Goebbels served as chancellor of Germany for one day. It's not how long you want to serve any job, by the way. Before he and his wife, Magda Goebbels, poisoned their six children and themselves. Man, when you think about a testament to life. He was the stage director of Hitler's rise to power. You know, when you, when you read these stories, you kind of, it takes your breath away when you think, like, this is reality. Like, these people walked the earth. He used fear and terror to conquer the streets. He presented the political party as a protector of the people, all the while stirring up and antagonizing the opposition. He presented uh, his... He is the man who coined the fr this phrase, if you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it and you will even come to believe it yourself. Here was a man who mastered words, and not just words in the radio and the press, but everything the words touched upon. Now think about this for us as believers. This, this guy wanted to, 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 to infiltrate his agenda, his worldview, not only in the radio and the press, but in things such as theater, films, literature, music, and the fine arts. So let me give you a couple of his more popular quotes. A lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. Arguments must therefore be crude, clear, forcible, and appeal to emotions and instincts, not the intellect. This guy was brutal. Truth was wholly unimportant and entirely subordinate 
to the tactics of psychology. Propaganda works best when those who are being manipulated are confident they are acting on their own free will. He said the rank and file are usually much more primitive than we imagine. Propaganda must therefore always be essentially simple and repetitious. Here, here's one that makes my blood go cold. It is the absolute right of the state to supervise the formation of public opinion. This guy, this was, this was a guy who knew what he was doing. And he had a brain and a gift to set out to accomplish that goal. He believed that perception was reality and perception was created through words. So what came out of the mouth fostered the reality under which he believed they lived. And boy, the, the guy pushed that envelope. So let me th let's, let's think about this. If only we had more Christians devoted to Christ which is equal to the loyalty of Goebbels to Hitler, would we start to see real change? And I'm not saying that's not taking place today here in our, in our church community. But this was a guy who was bent on accomplishing the task at hand. And I think about that by way of illustration with Goebbels, that, that if, we, if we took our faith to heart, how would the church change? How would it affect the church? How would it affect the way we speak to each other as well as the way we speak to non-believers. So just in opening, I ask this question. Do we, do we acknowledge and utilize the power of our words and Christ's words? Do we acknowledge and utilize the power of our words? You see, our words have, have as well. We have Christ's words. Do we acknowledge and utilize the power of these words for the good of Christ and for the good of those around us? So we're, 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 we're um, back in uh, opening up in 2 Peter. First, the book really, again, not that it doesn't address really deep, sound theological issues, but Peter's trying to shepherd this church, so there's a lot of encouragement, and, and surprise, surprise, we've heard a lot of encouragement. More, it gives you encouragement of the gospel, of what the history of the gospel is, how its present influences, and the things to come, but then says, in the meantime, you've got you've to grow in your faith, and he's really brought up a lot of things about don't live according to the former lust, don't get pulled by the ways of the world. And then he turns a little bit, and last week we touched upon the fact that he was calling us to love deeply, and then he closes out with that verse from Isaiah 40 where it says, all flesh is like grass, which really helped put in context that, it, that if time, if you look at each day as that hourglass as time is running out, and you realize, I've just got this day, there's going to be a greater sense of urgency. And there's where that quote from Isaiah comes in by saying, you know, this, this is going quick, this life that we live. So with that... Um, with those sobering words about the brevity of life, there's that encouragement to love deeply. And it's interesting now, when, you, when we look at our Bibles, we have chapters, we have caption headings, and we have verses. But when you got the original, when this letter was written, there were no verses. You didn't kind of change gears here and there. You were reading this story. And so the story is going along these lines to say, hey, love deeply. And, and this, is, this is short. We don't have a lot of time here. And then it opens up in chapter 2, verse 1, which says this. So... Or therefore, put away, and some of the other versions use the words lay aside or rid ourselves. So put away or rid ourselves of all malice, all deceit, <coughs> all deceit and hypocrisy and, every, and, and envy and all slander. Let me read that again. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy 
and all slander. And that's the ESV version. I actually am going to take a, a, a run down the King James to kind of point something out because I think it makes it a little clearer. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all evil. Um, therefore, rid yourselves. Excuse me. I don't, I don't need to read that. It's in the second pass. In verse 2, I'm going to read the King James. So we're just going to go with the, King, the, the ESV here. I'm sorry about that. I was getting ahead of myself. So we, we read the word so or therefore, and I, and I love, I read a commentary, and the guy always says, he says, when you see therefore, you have to stop and say, what's it therefore? Yep, it's, it's kind of drawing us into this question. So Peter is concluding logically that the next step in loving others deeply um, within our church community is to take a look at our interaction among believers. You want to love somebody, you've got to watch the words that come out of your mouth. And the first thing is to put aside certain behaviors um, that really are a reflection of the heart that come out of our mouth. And he's saying these things need to go. Now, it's interesting. Peter's already told us not to live according to the former lusts. Um, and if you look at these, I'm going to call them sins, you're like, well, are these sins really that bad? You know, we're not talking like about murder, adultery, drunkenness, greed, and the like. And so here's the practical application. This is a letter written to a church. If we see somebody come in here today who says, yeah, I've got three girlfriends and a wife, and they boasted it to Dale and Randy and myself, we would have a fit. Like, we would take them out to the parking lot. We'd look for the three other largest church members to accompany us. And we would take them into the parking lot, and we would have a conversation about how they can fix their behavior. You know, if somebody's boasting about defrauding the IRS or doing some other overt, you know, explicitly sinful behavior, we're going to address it. And what's interesting here is that these sins addressed here are the ones that fit snugly into our Christian community that we tolerate, that we can get away with, all right? And I, and I hate to say it that way, but it's the truth. And that's why we're having the conversation in Second Peter of addressing these things because we're not worried about those overt sins unless you go to the Corinthian church. Now, they had some problems there with overt sins in chapter 5, 1 Corinthians. Um, so every once in a while, those big sins do creep in, but we tend to get a letter about them saying, fix it from somebody like Paul. So these lesser sins now is where we're going, and that's what we're going to talk about. So um, I'm going to ask us, let's do the doxa, am I spiritual test this morning, okay? It's the doxa, quote, am I spiritual test? And I ask ourselves, do we have a problem here? Where, where, where are we in our hearts with some of this? And everyone's breathing a sigh of relief now. Um, but I'm, there's a lot where you could go with this stuff. So malice, it's defined as enmity of heart, malevolence, ill will, a spirit delighting in harm or misfortune to another, a disposition to injure another, a malignant, a malignant design of evil. That's a hard definition. Delight in misfortune. And so just for us here this morning, have we recently said this? You see somebody ha have some misfortune befall them, and we respond with the words, they had it coming. Have any of us done that? And they had it coming. Or no, no, maybe you didn't say it exactly like that, so I'll give you a different use of the same words. How about this? It serves them right. Have you done that? I'm getting some smiles over here. Jessica, I appreciate that, by the way. I'm not picking on you. <laughs> I mean, this is stuff I do. I mean, this is not, Jesse, this is me. I was, I was saying, well, how do I delight? In, how do I respond to really show what's in my heart? Ah, they, they had it coming. Or maybe this one. I like this one, too. They made their beds. Let them sleep in it. 
Now think about a holy God when I drop the ball, if that's what he said to me. Oof, body blow. Now I'm looking for air. This is not comfortable any longer. Because we have world standards and then we have God's standards. And when I drop the ball, you know what God does for me? He walks up and says, Jonathan, you're loved and beyond value in my eyes. And he sends people to pick me up and dust me off and love me and restore me and care for me. That's what he does when I drop the ball. And depending on the day of the week, we all rotate days when we drop the ball. That's the truth of the matter. I'm broken, fallen, sinful. It's not if I'm going to drop the ball. You see, all of those statements could have applied to me if you watched me when I've had a bad week. You could have said, well, he made that bed. He should sleep in it. He had it coming. And do we live under judgment and condemnation in Christ Jesus? Or the unmerited favor and kindness of a holy God who has given us a spiritual provision beyond our wildest imagination? And so I think about that, and I don't know about you guys, but if you said those things, maybe it's a little time for repentance. Um, it's, it's, you know, I just struggle there. These are, direct, these are declarations that show a heart devoid of God's grace and kindness. And I rejoice because I know some of us in here this morning, when they see somebody land on the ground, they're, they're the first person to pick them up. You know, when you think about ministry opportunities that we have to partner with other people who are doing things well, you know, we don't have to do things well. We just have to find those who are doing things well and help them. And it's the same return. It's you get to be a part of this amazing receipt of grace and extend it and push it on and spread it out around the world. Deceit, another fun one. Uh, uh, any declaration or practice which misleads another and causes him to believe that it's false. A false representation, an underhanded practice, Used to defraud another. Now, now, the grosser deceptive acts we're not engaging in. But I started thinking about this and where I've been really deceitful within the church and where it's been really destructive, and I've been convicted on this. You ever ride, and, and I'm going to have some fun with this, by the way, because I'm up here, and you, you'd, you'd be doing this to me driving home if I didn't bring it up this morning, which is great. When you get through with a sermon and you, go, and you start picking them apart, and, and, you know, you're picking the pieces apart and judging it, and, well, they should have done it this way or they should have done it that way. And it's not just preaching. It's how we serve in ministry, how we critique each other and criticize and tear apart how they've done their job. And now here's the big problem. You know, as an elder with Dale and Randy, there are things that come into our purview that are really delicate, sensitive matters. These are the things where people ha have had the worst of the worst things in life happen, and they come before us broken. And they're seeking counsel, they're seeking help, they're seeking wisdom. And we have to make judgment calls on how do we care for them. And then on the outside, the church sees just a superficial interaction and they start condemning us for the job we've done with them. Yet, we are lacking half the facts when we make those types of judgment calls. And it's deceptive. Now, I can think that in my heart and say, well, they're doing a crappy job. But the minute I say it to Miriam or somebody else, you know what I'm doing? I'm perpetrating an act of deception because I don't have all the facts, and I'm making a judgment call on the facts, and then I'm perpetuating it to Miriam, where Miriam thinks Jonathan's right. He should be condemning the elders. They've done a sloppy job, right? And we'll, we'll egg each other on with that. Holy deceptive. And I've realized this time goes on that if people are placed in authority in my life, I'm going to trust God with their, their authority. And it's a safe place to be because I can't cause any damage in the church. But I know I am guilty of that. I stand before you having stood on one side of the fence and now living on the other side of the fence and don't like it. 
And, and so the point is that, that I'm making statements about the state of a welfare of another or a judgment call they're making without all the facts. And the truth of the matter is if I don't have all the facts, what's the likelihood my judgment call is going to be accurate? And if it's not accurate and I state it to you, it is deceptive by its very nature. So I leave that out there with us this morning. And again, whether you're helping somebody in your community group and they, and they bring something up, you know, words are incredibly powerful. So watch. If I don't have all the facts, sometimes it's best to keep my opinion to myself. And again, I'm saying that from per, purely from my experience. So, done with that. How are we doing so far? Anyone batting 100 so far? Anyone speaking deceptive things? And I love 2 Timothy 2.16, avoid godless chatter. Again, 90% of my wor words are probably godless chatter. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly, meaning the more trash I speak, the less I look like his son. Very simple math there. Hypocrisy, one of my favorites. What's the biggest condemnation of the church, of the world to the church? They're a bunch of? Yeah. What, if you're thinking that when you came here, welcome to the church. Yes, that's completely accurate, by the way. We are absolutely hit. I'm speaking for all of you now and enjoying it. Because I've already busted you on the first two ones, right? And that makes you a hypocrite, right? Because you say one thing, you say, I'm spiritual, and I don't act spiritual. So with that, we are all hypocrites. So let's, let's just make sure we get that clear. A feigning to be what one is not. There's your definition. Or to feel what one does not feel. A concealment of, one real, of one's real character, disposition, and motives. Especially assuming of false appearances of virtue or religion. Even Webster's got this one, right? A, a simulation of goodness. And so... Think about this. Let's define character right now. Character, your character, your behavior, your character is who you are when no one's watching. All right? There's the baseline for our hypocrisy. Character is who we, who we are when no one is watching. It's interesting how we change our behavior when people start watching. Security in us before a holy God. See, if I'm, I'm not secure in who I am, I want you to think I'm somebody I'm not. And I've noticed this as time's gone on with me. My spiritual skin has become much thicker, and it's because my security and identity in Christ is greater. See, I know at the end of the day I'm a broken, fallen man before a holy God who loves me unconditionally, which allows me to step out and make statements that I'm not necessarily comfortable with, yet I know are truth. And even if it's not true with me, I know it's true with the God that I love and serve and that I'm, I've been redeemed. I've been purchased with, with a price. And so my sense of security, whether I have a good day or a bad day, gives me a greater sense that I can be who I am, and that's it. It's all you're going to get this morning. Might not get better from here, by the way, might get worse from here, but that's it. And so this hypocrisy, I think, flows from the result of, of us not having our identity fully grounded in Christ. And my identity is only fully grounded in Christ by His grace. Meaning, how do I condemn you for not having a fully established identity in Christ when mine has been simply by his good favor and measure? I sit here and try to present a picture to you of somebody I'm not or condemn you for something that you haven't received by God's grace. So what about us? Do we try to hide some things about who we really are? Do we change our behavior and how we speak depending on the company we keep? 
Do we act spiritually superior around believers based on how well we know the Bible or how long we walk with the Lord or how many Bible studies we've been to or how many Bible conferences we've been to or how many marriage conferences we've been to or how many, all these other things that make me better than you, I've done that you are yet to do. Do we do, and especially around newer believers, that's hard. That's not right. Uh, it's destructive again. Because we also set a standard that if you know your Bible, you'll be better off. Now, I think that's a great thing to do. But before a holy God, you're loved as much as I am before this God at the same time. Whether you can spout 14 Bible verses, whether you can give a lot or a little, your love before a holy God is constant and fixed. Can't be earned. Now, I'm not saying don't go to Bible conferences or marriage conferences or study scripture or memorize. They're all good things. But when I use it as a club to push you down so I can exalt myself, it becomes destructive. Envy. Oh, you know why I don't have Christian bumper stickers on my car? Because <laughs> if you see how I drive and you know who I am, you're going to say there are two different things going on here. Yeah, at least don't tell the world if you're having a bad day. Do it anonymously. I'm, I'm being facetious now. <laughs> be an anonymous hypocrite if you have to be a hypocrite. How's that? All right, work with me. It's not, you know, I squirm when I prepare for these Sundays, by the way. It's not, I'm smiling now. I'm not smiling last night at 10 o'clock typing this stuff out. You know, not happy. Envy. This is another great one. Ill will, chagrin, discontent, or uneasiest, uneasiness at the sight of another's excellence or good fortune, accompanied with some degree of hatred and a desire to possess equal advantage. All right? So now this envy, it can concern how people look, what they have, how they live spiritually, and it all boils down to this. Truthfully, I'm not content with who I am or I'm too lazy to work for what somebody else got. Now, there's another reason for that I'll get to in a minute that's personal to me. But, but I'm, not, I'm discontent in where I am, so when I see what you have, I want that. You know who I'm envious of? I'm a I'm little, little bit of tongue-in-cheek here, but I'm envious of really rich people who, don't, who are given lots of money. And here's why. If you work for it, I don't want to be envious because I know you had to work hard, and I don't want to work hard. I'm lazy, right? All right? So if you had to work that hard and go to school for decades and then make a ton of money, I'm not envious of you. I see what the price you had to pay. But like if God dumps buckets of cash in your lap for free, I'm like, hey, Dale, why did Dale get all the money? Here's what I'm saying. God's wasting money on Dale when he could have given it to me. Do you see the madness here? If, you, if, if I strip the veneer of spirituality away, that's what I'm saying. That's hard stuff. I'm not happy about this. Because I was really thinking, who am I envious of? You know, I'm not envious of those who work because I know they work hard. You know, and, and, and we're all born into lots in life. It's really interesting where we're born. And, and, I, and I look at some people born with disabilities and really some, some things that they really struggle with, um, and I'm, my, I'm sympathetic to them, my, my heart. You know, I, I see where I've been given so much. That's probably the bottom line. Um, and then it becomes, how do you bless those people? How do you use, utilize those things um, for their benefit? I love this all slander. How much slander? And just how much does all exclude, by the way? I'm just wondering. You know, it's interesting. Some of these things had an adjective all. Like, we get to keep some of these minor sins, but the slander is like, all of it's got to go. And, and here's why. Now, let me give you the test quickly. Have you ever been at a table, somebody gets up and leaves, and then you make a statement about them after they've left? Have you ever done that? They're no longer fair game if they leave the table. That's my rule. 
I literally have been sitting at tables in circles with people where somebody gets up and leaves and somebody makes another remark, and I turn around sternly and say, they're no longer fair game if they're not at the table. Because we wouldn't have made the statement if they were there. And I will say that it's never comfortable making that statement, by the way, but if you don't stand on it, you know what happens? It's not a statement that follows, it's a conversation that follows, and it's slanderous. Because if we really cared and loved them and they were failing somewhere, we would pull them aside and say, hey, you didn't tie your shoes this morning. You're going to trip and fall. You need to tie your shoes or whatever it is. We wouldn't wait till they leave to point out that they failed to tie their shoes. What do they need to get? Pull on slippers next time instead of forgetting to tie their shoes. How dumb could they be? You know, it's craziness. If they're not at the table, they're not fair game. And boy, it's, it's destructive. It's really destructive. And again, it slips under the door in our churches, and it should not. So it's interesting that we have a couple of these attributes that are preceded by the word all again. And, and this, this slander and this deceit in particular is here's why I think there's an adjective all in front of them, because it's so destructive in the church. Is, is if there's slander and there's deceit, it destroys intimacy among believers and it destroys the community cohesiveness within the body. See, I can be a little envious and get away with it. Now, I can have a little malice when you fall and break your ankle. But, but if I'm, I'm doing things that are deceptive and slanderous, it destroys community. James is a great book if you're, if you're saying, well, I don't think Jonathan beat me up adequately this morning. I didn't feel the Holy Spirit stick, the conviction stick, whack me in the back of the head. Then let's go to James. And you can read this for your homework this week. James says this, the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Furthermore, James, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who are made in his likeness and image. Think that one through. That's hard stuff. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider the great forest is set on fire by the small spark. And really, here's the, um, the culmination of James in James chapter 1, verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. That's a hard statement. The whole thing washes quickly when we open our mouth. And again, that's why we see a lot of this. So, so if we boil this section down, Peter, I, I've used the title is, um, and I want to go back to that, the, 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 the spoken words, is that what I said? Yep, the, the spoken word. The vast majority of these five things are asking us to strip away, boil out in words. Some of it's in behavior, but the vast majority of it boils out in words. And so, again, that's really where I wanted to take that this morning. You could take it other places. But, but the spoken words are destructive. Um, and I hope that we can take that to heart. The Greek word for put aside or put a, uh, to take away um, here denotes this. It's the same Greek phrase used in Acts chapter 7 when people were taking off or setting aside their coats to stone Stephen. And so that's the picture when we think about these words. These are things that we're taking off and setting aside. We're, we're moving on and around and away from the way we speak in order to move forward in Christ. And that's the spoken word. So just a, a word that we heed. The living word, um, Peter 2, verses 2 through 3, it says this. Now I get to do my King James spin, by the way. Uh, Likewise, newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That was the ESV version. 
And so we have here, as newborn babies under the King James Version, desire the pure milk of the Word. And I think that puts it in context, is that, that we're, if we're going to feed and nourish ourselves spiritually, this milk that they're referring to is God's Word. That you may grow thereby, and if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So, so the illustration sets this up real quickly, and, and moms are going to say, well, about time they start talking about us, something we can relate to here. How many mothers have an intimate relationship with their children when they're nursing them? Um, you know, it's interesting, just the smell of a mother with its infant. The infant can discern its mother from other women that pick the child up, the, the intimacy there. So we're talking about these newborn infants here. And, and we get this illustration of a mother and child that really sets the stage. And, and the, the, that newborn infant trusts and is wholly dependent upon the mother for the milk. No one else. It is exclusive in the trust and dependence. And nothing other than the milk. The milk is wholly sufficient to grow and nourish this child. There's nothing else that's needed. And that's the picture that God's giving us in Peter about how we should see his word, the word of God. That it is wholly sufficient to nourish and equip us for everything we need in terms of living out our faith and spiritual life. So here's a question for our mothers today. Could you tell me when your baby is hungry? How many mothers could... Think about this. A man, a it's really interesting, the, the detail that comes into play there um, between the mother and the infant. The mother can tell when everything's going on with this. She can look at the kid, and just the way their child cries, half time, no, he needs a diaper, he's not hungry. And you're like, how do you know? Oh, she knows. She just knows. And it's the way that God, our Father, just knows. And so how, how many mothers out there could tell when your baby was hungry, when, when he or she is craving your milk? And here's the other one. Could you tell when your child was satisfied with that milk? And it's like you just hit a, it's a, it's an amazing picture of our relationship with God and how his word, what his word does to us. And it's also a picture for us to, to have this revelation of how we should hunger or thirst to be satisfied for God's Word. You know, it's interesting, our culture's changing everything. You know, we don't think about the intimacy of a mother breastfeeding her child. Half the mothers in our culture today will use bottles, and I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just saying it takes it out of the purest sense of the theme they're trying to drive through here. That's all it does. It dilutes it. But it's a picture of how we should be dependent and hunger and thirst, and not only hunger and thirst, but be finding our satisfaction in the Word of God. And so imagine this, if you're a mother and you, and you run out of milk and the kid's hungry and you give them a bottle with water in it. Have any mothers in here done that? You want to see a revolt? You want to see a little kid throw a fit? How quick does that child know, I'm being defrauded. Mom is robbing me of the mother's milk. This person is evil. Little, po little kid points his finger at mom, mouthing the words evil, right? Is that what the kid does? There is such a huge disparity when you try to play that off, we did that just a couple times. It's like we had nothing to give the kid. And it was like, here, take some water. And they're like, uh-uh. Bottle pops out of the kid's mouth, you know. And, and so with that, here's the problem, though. Imagine if we've been raised on diluted milk or on spiritual junk food. And then we read this verse. We don't even have a clue. We don't have a passing reference 
for what it really is to have mother's milk or the Word of God. See, the Word of, word of God is in this book. It's, it's not the fine print at the bottom of the chapter. It's not in a commentary. It's not in a spiritual way of living. I wonder how the church would change if we took all of the spiritual books and spent that time reading God's Word again compared to the other stuff. And, and so, because the problem becomes that as we step away from God's Word, all bets are off. It may be good. It may not be good. And it's potent and fantastic readings that I write that are really basically distilled chunks of God's truth. And it's potent and I can tell it. But the point is, is that in our culture today, as, 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 as we move away from, from living and nourishing ourselves exclusively on the Word of God, we're diluting the nutrition spiritually we receive. And as we dilute the nutrition, we wind up being spiritually malnourished Christians. And that's where they're going with this. Because if you are in the Word, show one of the things I love about docs is we march through books of the Bible. We come across passages that Randy D. and myself are like, I don't want to teach that. You teach that. It's like, Mikey, try the Cheerios or the, or the, the food. It's like, uh, no, you, you go there. I'm not, I don't want to touch that. It's not fun. It's not entertaining. It's not a sermon on Sunday morning that you leave feeling happy. You're feeling convicted and broken and worn out. Well, if we don't get that Sunday morning, I can assure you, you're not going to get it on Netflix. Not going to get it on Facebook. They're, they're, this is the place it's got to happen if it's going to happen. So where are we as a church? Where are we as a people? Where are we as a Christian culture? Are we, are we spiritually nourished? You know how to beat up somebody twice your size? Find somebody who's malnourished. It's an easy way to do it. See, it's a fight we're involved in. It's not just feeling good and living a Christian life where we give and we do nice things. We're in a battle. This is a fight that has all the chips on the table. So I rejoice that we get to go through this and march through this in Doxa. What do we believe about God's Word? Let me just give you a little bit of this as we come down the home stretch. Hebrews 4.12 tells us this, for the Word of God is active, uh, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the deciding, the dividing of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, the truth is nothing else is judging the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, this is what we believe. This is our view in Doxa. Check our statement of faith. All scriptures God breathed, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Psalm 33, 4 tells us this, for the word of the Lord is right and true. Man, Psalm 19, I've mentioned it last week. Go soak in Psalm 19. There are a lot of stuff you can soak in. Hard to come, come along empty-handed here. Psalm 119, 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You want to learn how not to sin against God? Spend time in the word. Want to learn how to watch your words better? Spend time in the word. You want to learn how to treat your wife a little better? Soak in the Word. You want, to turn, you want to look for God's wisdom in how you deal with your business. Spend time in God's Word. Another Psalm 119, 105. Your, your Word is a lamp to my feet. There is no other lamp out there. The other lamps are strobe lights of entertainment in the world saying more, bigger, and better. Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. So, we're, so are we as a people who seek, crave, and find our satisfaction in the Word of God and God alone. 
I wrote this, show me a church or a Christian who banks wholly on the Word of God and you'll find a healthy growing body. Real simple. So where are we on that? We do a Bible app with Scripture. We want to be a church. Find something to soak you daily in God's Word. So, you know, I think about Joseph Goebbels, again, as I read this book, and it's interesting when, when you see people who live lives that were so destructive, and yet we are so similar in some regards. You know, just as Goebbels was devoted every waking moment to the exaltation of the person of Adolf Hitler, and boy, he was, so we are devoted to the exaltation of the person of Christ. See, we don't promote lies and deceit by every means. I love this quote. There will come a day when, when all the lies will collapse under their own weight and truth will triumph again. Joseph Goebbels. I, I could take some, not everything that he does, I wipe away. He's got some truth there. And he just took it out of context. Timothy tells us this, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Boy, great words for us. And our message is about Christ, our living word. And we proclaim this about Christ. It says this in John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. This, this, is, our pro- this is our message to this world. We bring good news, Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Another passage in Isaiah I love. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and every one of us under the sound of my voice. Because the Lord has anointed us to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That is our message as the body of Christ. So let us be conscious of our words, whether they're with each other over lunch or proclaiming the gospel. Ephesians encourages us, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, with psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for how much I love this, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. And I love this passage in Second Peter because it says, if we do these things, we will know, we will know and have tasted that the Lord is good. You know, we sang that this morning, you are good, you are good. You are good. So I hope maybe this week our words be a little more conscious of them. I'm going to uh, pray for us about this because I've been convicted. I've had my toes stepped on, um, and, and I know I can do better. And, I, and I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to say we can do better. We can. So let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that, that the good news is not contingent upon whether I have a good day or a bad day with my words. Yet, yet you've taught us, you tell us that our words matter. So, Father, I pray for us individually and collectively as a church that, that you would forgive us where we've dropped the ball, that, that we would speak when we know the truth and that we wouldn't when we don't. That's very simple. 
Father, we thank you just for the, the many opportunities that we do have to proclaim who you are and the God we serve, the mightiness, the goodness of who you are. Lord, I, I pray especially for those that come alongside us that, that we can give them words of love, of encouragement, of hope, of peace, of kindness, of redemption, of rest restoration. Father, that, that all is never lost in the body of Christ, that, that we can never do something to out the cross, that, that we can never fall too low, that, that you as our God will not redeem and restore us, and that we as a people will love each other and love each other well. We praise you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.